adults with low literacy skills are three times more likely to be in poverty, four times more likely to have poor health, and eight times more likely to be incarcerated. We, the educators, want to help you improve those numbers. How? Through this podcast. We, the educators, believe in the importance of integrity, social justice, domestic literacy, common understanding, overall well-being, and the blessings of opportunity for all people. And we establish this podcast as a podcast of educators, by educators, and for educators. All right, folks, here we are back on the We the Educators podcast. Uh, I'm one of the co-hosts, Earl Brian, and my uh, usual co-host is none other than Dr. Raymond Lordani. It's good to be here, Earl. I'm excited about today's, well, I'm excited about them all, but this one here, I think, has awesome promise for making good, positive change. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, you know, in our last episode, we started talking about the Learning Cities Initiative a little bit towards the end. And we really wanted to to expand on that. And, uh, you know, I've done a little bit of reading uh, by no stretch of the imagination. I'm an expert on it here. But it sounds like a very interesting and fascinating uh, framework. So why don't you go ahead and just kind of fill us in uh, on what this Learning Cities Initiative is? Well, to give a quick sketch this Learning Cities Initiative, which come out of UNESCO, of you know, the United States is not a member, but through an organization called the um, Collaboration of Lifelong, I'm sorry, Coalition of Lifelong Learning Organizations, uh, the United States, those of us who are um, practicing this and studying it and putting it into practice, um, that's how we're in it. But they start by this. They say, look. In a fast-changing world, while social, economic, and political norms are constantly redefined, economic growth, employment, and here, they look at urbanization, growing of cities, and such like that, which is okay. But here, a bunch of us, here in the States anyway, have taken it to mean, let's go to the neighborhood, a community, uh, a region. You know, we don't necessarily focus on the city in and of itself at least as far as what we're doing we want to create we want to go from like what is now in many cases it's survival to a culture of lifelong learning through where they have 12 14 commitments 15 commitments so they affirm that to empower citizens we have to strive to give them access and encourage their use of a broad away array of learning opportunities throughout their entire lives to be able to respond to societal changes and the expectations on and of adults um, going in deeper into the 21st century, global economy, um, what's the other thing? Now, the, the rapid pace of technology. There's a lot, Earl, that's going on right now. And for those um, adults who have grown up in the margins or what we call the underserved or impoverished communities, they're getting left further behind. So this Learning Cities Initiative says, look, we must take learning and embrace it wherever it happens, both informal 
education structures, schools and stuff. But more importantly, let's recognize it in the community. Let's give it authentication, affirmation, and offer some type of a certificate for it. So it is affirmed. And it is a, a, an actual means of learning. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and I like that. And, and I think that's the thing that, um, you know, I'm, my background with leadership uh, is we, we talk about learning, right? There's old saying that, that leaders are readers and, and leaders are learners and that sort of stuff, right? And, and, and I think that's kind of what we're talking about here to, to an extent is, is what, what I took away from it is, is that lifelong learning piece, right? Is it's not just about going in and it's not just about saying, okay, yes, you sit in a classroom from K through 12, we've done our due diligence, whatever you do with it is on your own. It's about being there, fostering, nurturing, encouraging people to continue learning uh, through, throughout their life. And I think that's just good policy because if we don't continue learning, well, how are we ever going to make changes? How are we going to innovate? How are we going to strive as a society? And this is a gap. Uh, this is a stop gap, I should say, to try to get in there and close that gap between, uh, between quote, more well-off communities and, and less affluent neighborhoods, right? Right. And you find, who was it? Richard Florida, back in the 90s, early 2000s, had a couple projects. I think it was out of what? Carnegie Mellon or University of Pitts, maybe Duke, University of Duquesne. And he had some uh, projects looking at the creative class. And many times those who he found were creative were in, were in those impoverished communities, but were never given a chance. Learning City says that we must acknowledge the many different characteristics that are embedded within the communities, the neighborhoods, the, the city or the region, what we call, what, the metropolitan area. We give credence to their heritage and social structures. We create for them and mobilize their ability to learn, to want to learn, to be engaged, to contribute. So we have an inclusive society from higher education, from K through 12, outside K through 12, through the crafts and apprenticeships to higher education and so forth. And again, learning in that community and it revitalizes learning in families and communities and it facilitates a learning in and beyond the workplace. So properly adjudicated Earl, I think this is something that we can synthesize with authentic learning and appreciative inquiry, like we had discussed. And now we really have like, Oh, I hate to be uh, cliche, but the icing on the cake. Yeah, no, uh, you were reading my mind because that's exactly what I was thinking. There is you know, this ties in well with with uh, past couple episodes we've had with the preach of inquiry and and authentic learning and and moving into you know so a lot of times when we say you know disadvantaged areas you know people think like inner cities and stuff like it which it's true but for me with my experiences. Uh, you know, where I've lived and grown up, I, I think a lot about like native communities, uh, you know, living in Alaska, living in New Mexico. I've been exposed to a lot of different, you know, tribal organizations uh, and, and governments. But the one thing that they all have in common is uh, poverty, uh, difficulty getting quality education, difficulty getting resources and all that good stuff. And when they do, 
you know, again, this is where I think appreciative inquiry and authentic learning kind of come into play for this. When they do, when somebody comes in, you know, to, to, to save them, they don't take those things into account, right? They don't think, take the cultural things into account. They don't take the, the, the pride, the history, the tradition of these organizations into account when they come in to try to provide them. And then on the backside of it, the, the people who come in again playing the savior role, they don't understand why these communities don't buy in. And, and you hear this, well, you know, we came in and we spent all this money to educate them and they just don't want to be educated. Well, that's not true. They want to be reached on that authentic type of level. And I think, again, like I said, you're reading my mind. I think all of this ties together to be able to go into a community, learn how to reach that community effectively, and then build the program out so you can actually get them engaged and move them up the the, the food chain with whatever that looks like, right? Not everybody is meant to be a history professor. Not everybody's meant to be a math professor. What does education look like to them, right? Exactly. And wow, you mentioned about like coming in and being a savior in this and that. And I, I just thought of a, uh, one of the courses I had in, you know, in the doctoral degree was the, a statement someone made. They were a, a doctoral candidate and they were from Africa. And <laughs> this line stuck with me. It's been going on 20 years now. She said, it was, she says she's very thankful to Dr. Leakey because he actually came in and discovered them so they could have personhood. And I never thought about that before, Earl. And I'm like, you know, she's right. You know, they, they weren't there to be discovered. We don't go in to save them. We go in to collaborate. We, let's go to the, the, um, the, where the Native American, um, areas, communities. Let's go out to rural America because uh, that's, you know, could be quite different as well. But those who are, in quotes, learned aren't going out to save them. That's not what it's about with his, with Seabree and with the Learning Says Initiative. We are going out to collaborate with them, to bring resources in that they don't have access to, and working with them, say, okay, what are your needs? What's your experiences like? How can we help you? What do you need from us? And not throwing just money at it. We've done enough of that and with no real positive improvements, right? right. <laughs> you know, we can go paint all the parks we want. We can deliver all the food we want. But without providing a base of education and learning, like you say, you know, it nothing really improves. Yeah. Well, and again, that's why I love this. And and that's just, I mean, that's just good politics, period, right, is, is getting to know people. Again, coming from the leadership perspective, uh, that's one of the things I, I work with, you know, when I'm talking with organizations. I said, you got to take that time. You got to take that time to get to know your people. I use the know your people and look out for their welfare. And it's the same thing here with education. Right. If you're not taking that time and you're not getting to know those folks, if you're if you're wondering why little Susie is is struggling in school, take some time, talk to her, find out. Maybe it's a home life situation, right? You know, maybe her her mom and dad are 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 having marital issues or whatever, and, and maybe she's not able to focus and get her homework done because she's taking on all these responsibilities that most adults can't handle, much less a 16, 17-year-old uh, girl, I'm using air quotes there, uh, in, in high school. 
And, and if you're not taking the time to understand and, and as a teacher, look for ways to help her out and not just her, but all of your students. And, and I, I know teachers are listening to this right now. Educators listen to this right now thinking, wow, Earl, that's a heavy lift. Yeah. You, you straight. Yes, it is, it is a heavy lift. Mm-hmm but it's worth it. I promise you the change you're going to see, the engagement you're going to see, it's worth it. And how many times do you hear that, well, I went to school in you know, 40s, 50s, and we didn't engage in all that. But remember, it was a different culture, drastically different. It was a different world, a different community. Conceptualizations were different. And now, you know, with the changing culture, I mean, we are different ideologically and conceptually from we were just 10 years ago with the introduction of more and more, shall we use the term, social media with rapid uh, technological advancements. You got the introduction of artificial intelligence that's now weaving throughout all of the world, okay? And you think about what you just said about little Susie. Let's look at the adults. When we get adults into adult basic ed or GED or even they have their high school diploma or equivalency and they want to go, you know, carpentry, masonry, um, phlebotomy, respiratory, whatever, and they're sitting in class. And you as the instructor thinking, man, they're checked out. They, they must not be understanding. No, what we don't understand is what their day was like at work. Did yep. they have a, a little, shall we say, a little riff with the significant other? Were their kids doing something that, that needed their attention? When adults come to us, they, they want to make a change. So we need to meet them where they are. And if they had a bad day, we have to understand that. Yeah. And I think that's where leadership principles are that you talk about. That's where that comes into play. Know your people, know your yeah, students. A hundred percent. And so as you were saying that, you know, cause I get that pushback from time to time too. And I said, there's like, you know, yeah, back in the forties and fifties, they did, they, they did do that. Right. And, and, but it was a different way. Communities were smaller. You know, people knew each other. We had neighborhoods, we had community togetherness. Uh, like we don't have now. So yes, you're right. Now you have to be much more intentional about it. Whereas back then students, look, I grew up in Northeast Tennessee. I went to school through, you know, in my high school career, I'll just say it was in the mid to late nineties, but it may as well have been the fifties and sixties as, as kind of, I don't want to say backwards because it has a negative connotation, but my, my hometown was definitely behind the times, right? I didn't want to get in trouble at school, not because, you know, I didn't want to get paddled or I didn't want to be in detention because I had to go to church with that teacher <laughs> on Sunday oh. and she's going to tell my, my grandparents what I did. And, but, but we, I guess the point is we knew each other and, and she knew my situation and, and all of those things. Right. So we did do them, but it was, it was organic, if you will. It wasn't right. something we had to be intentional about. And that's a big difference. And, and, Again, that's a key part of this Learning Cities Initiative right, thing, right, right is, is rebuilding that community connectedness. So we're not going to get through all of them today, These what they call the commitments, okay? Mm-hmm. And basically the commitments are ideas, actions to put into play, not to sit around and talk about them, 
but to get out there and get it done. So let's look at the first. And where I'm pulling from, Earl, is called the Guiding Documents, which can be found on UNESCO's uh, Global Network of uh, Learning Cities Initiative site. Okay? okay, It's available in several different languages, which is cool. And so here, they say, we commit ourselves to the following actions. One. And I'm just going to read it verbatim, and let's go ahead and ta um, just take it apart, break let's it down. Do so the title, Empowering Individuals and Promoting Social Cohesion. In today's society, in cities, individual empowerment and social cohesion are crucial to the well-being of citizens, fostering participation, trust, connectedness, and civic engagement. To equip citizens to anticipate and tackle the challenges of urbanization or of growing communities or of disinvested communities, I would add the cities and the neighborhoods and communities should attach great importance to individual empowerment and social cohesion. So you're looking at the individual and the broader picture. So in developing that, we support individual empowerment and social cohesion by four things. Ensuring that every citizen has the opportunity to become literate and obtain basic skills. Two, encouraging and enabling individuals to actively participate in the public life of their city. Three, guaranteeing gender equality. And four, creating a safe, harmonious, and inclusive community. So there's the very first... All the stuff that's packed within that very first commitment is massive. And breaking it down, individual and their role. You know, we're not pulling the individual out of the community. Okay, this is um, much more complex than that. We're looking at individuals firmly entrenched in their communities to be a participant and a leader and a teacher of their child. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that, uh, again, that is, <laughs> I love it. I love it. So what's, what's the next one? Cause I think we've, we've, we pretty much hit on a lot of those points okay. already. So what, what's the next one? So enhancing economic development and cultural prosperity. While economic development plays a fundamental role in increasing standards of living and maintaining the economic health of cities, societies, cultural prosperity is a powerful contributor to quality of life. As a repository of knowledge, meaning, and values, culture defines the way people live and interact within communities. In developing communities, we enhance economic development and cultural prosperity by, uh, was there seven or eight, stimulating inclusive and sustainable economic growth, which I find is the most brilliant of insight for economic development often fail because we don't address the foundation. We, we don't lay it. Reducing the proportion of citizens living in poverty, creating employment opportunities for all citizens, good employment, actively supporting science, technology, and innovation, ensuring access to diverse cultural activities, and the last one, encouraging participation in leisure and physical recreation. That is, having fun and relaxing is just as important in here <laughs> as stimulating economic growth and work. Well, yeah. And, and I, again, I think those things are indispensable to one another because, you know, there's all the, the, the neuroscience behind, you know, why do we have all of our best ideas in the shower? Right. <laughs> because we're relaxed. We're, we're, we're not overtaxed. Usually we're not thinking about all these things. 
And, and it's the same thing here. Like, like, I don't know about you, but how many times have you been out just like on a walk uh, with, with the pups or whatever? And like, you're like, Oh, light bulb idea. Right. But we get stuck in this. And again, it's kind of a modern, not even necessarily a modern issue, but with, uh, and, and for those of you watch or listening, I'm holding up my phone here, but we've got these things attached to our hips all day that keeps us connected to work. And, and, and we don't necessarily take the time right. off. I got, right. So, you know, I've talked about the responsible leadership podcast a couple of times on here. And I was just, I just interviewed the episode hadn't went live yet, but a lady named Joyce Shulman, uh, she wrote a book called uh, walk your way to better. And she takes people through these 99 walks that she calls it. Uh, but one of them, one of the walks is what she calls a no rules day, right? you got to give yourself a no rules day. And we were talking about it and it was the same thing here. She's like, look, she goes, what happened is one day my kids, we get up and my kids are like, yeah, you know, I want chocolate cake for breakfast. And she's all like, you know what? Fine. Today's a no rules day. Eat whatever you want, whenever you want. She goes, and it was amazing because my kids loved it and they were, because they were relaxed, there were no rules for that day. She goes, they, they, they were creative. They, they actually wanted to go back and read some of their, their uh, English homework for the week uh, because uh, it, it inspired them. And, you know, so she goes through all these things, but she's like, we need a no rules day every once in a while. And I think that's what we're talking about here a little bit is right. It's okay to take the pack off and just have fun. Right. And that line, cultural prosperity is a powerful contributor to quality of life. Okay, I think we see it there, right? With the, you know, I mean, I know I would be in a good mood with chocolate cake, big cold <laughs> glass of milk, but that's besides the point. But what is it about culture? Cultural prosperity. One, it allows people to be recognized for who they are, for yeah. their background, for their values and their beliefs. That we're not discarding them, Earl. We are including them for successful robust economic development and that like a glove you know fingered you know fingers through fingers it's uh cultural prosperity giving rise to economic development why because i'm being heard you're being heard person on the reservation uh, in a native american community in the inner city out in the rural out in the sticks as it were where i live yeah. we are being heard. Okay, now that creates ownership. But he, the thing is, it's rough. We don't have rubrics to just check off little progressive points. We go with it. You know, we teach and instruct in school, but also outside of school, in the community parks, museums, libraries, and so forth. Our podcast. <laughs> But we give rise and credence to cultural differences. And that prosperity adds to the strength of economic development, which we have heretofore really not done. Uh, you, you just spurred a question there. And, and, and again, I think we're probably going to end up doing a couple episodes on this so we can get through, <laughs> through all these. So I, I got to ask this question here because I think it's one that a lot, a lot of educators really need to stop, slow down and ask themselves, right? Right. What is more important in education, that the information is shared or that the information is retained? Huh. I can, I know many 
teachers, instructors who can back each of those. But when you break it down at the, at, to me at its barest bones, instruction, education is all about learning transfer. Okay. Taking what has been given. Now, a lot of people are very comfortable with the, what do they call that? The rage on the stage or the sage on the stage, yeah. something like that. But that is just disseminating information with no true, let's be honest, tests are just a snapshot in time. It's be the ability to measure one's ability to retain specific information for a period of time. Yep. But true learning is where you augment that in your day-to-day practice, right? And those who ascribe to the learning objectives, learning transfer, lowering the obstacles, eliminating the obstacles, dare I say, through embracing cultural differences, different heritage, celebrating you, Earl, from where you come from, and including bits from your culture into the classroom, into the learning activity, if it's you know in a park or in a church or wherever, and including those bits. That now we have ownership. Now a lot of people tend to disagree with a guy by the name of Malcolm Knowles, and he was the one who brought out you know building upon the Frankfurt School. He talked about andragogy or ways adult learn. Basically, they're principles. The field mm-hmm. tends to feel... But one of the, a couple of things is, adults want to be recognized for their knowledge and their skill and their ability, and adults bring with them to any educational activity a robust reservoir of knowledge. Okay? So yeah. just by going back to some of the old standards, augmenting some of this thinking of culture we can actually improve K through 12, post-secondary, higher ed, and so forth, or just by including culture. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, and I think you're right. And that's why, you know, I framed the question the way I did with, mm-hmm. is it more important to, is it more important to share the information or that the information is retained? Because, you know, it goes back to, to, for me, it goes back to, you know, what I teach about communication and, and the way I always put it is that communication is about what is heard and not what is said. Right. Because you can be talking to a hundred people and say the same exact thing, but you're probably going to get at least 99, maybe a hundred different interpretations of what you just said based on who picks up on body language, what, what, uh, who picks up on, you know, your posture, uh, words, different cultures, right? You know, right. there are some cultures where you give them a thumbs up and it doesn't mean a, okay, <laughs> you know, it means something totally different. Um, <laughs> And, and so I think that's the same thing here, right? Is like we can have a lot of teachers that can get through, they can get through the curriculum, right? They can, they, right. I checked all of the boxes as the state required curriculum. I taught the classes I was supposed to. But did you transfer information to the learner so they can make it useful? Right. Um, and, and I think to, to me, and again, I'm on the outside looking here when it comes to, to formal education, state regulated type education like that. That should be the biggest metric, right? Is, is how are we transferring information? Not did we just check all these boxes? Right. Earl, a little story. I was with uh, an instructional design team, and I'm not going to name names, but we were designing instruction 
for a community not located here in the States. And we were going by the best of distance education, virtual learning practices, standards, da 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 da. And you know, Earl, when you mouse over a link, what comes up is a hand with a finger, pointer finger extended, right? Most mm-hmm. of the time. Within the week of delivering the final product to this group, we get it back. And the fact that they were very, I wouldn't say furious, but upset that this finger on a hand was in this learning modules. And what it come down to is this. This community had the belief that there would be no disjointed body, disarticulated body parts. I know it sounds weird, but this, you know, yeah. dis, disarticulated, what, they're right. It was, what do we do? We cut it off at the wrist. We have a hand folded, fingers folded, and a pointer finger. Which is, you know, tip. It's it makes sense. I'm touching something, right? Right. So we just cut it to the hand touching something, the finger. But they did not like this because their belief system, spirituality, and such, no disarticulated bodies, right? And that was a (laughs) talk about a wake up call about cultural differences. So I think, Earl, we look at these rubrics, these standards, our ways of educating, and we need to start understanding, taking into consideration those who are culturally different. We actively support science, technology, and innovation, yes, but we also ensure access to diverse cultural activities. There's the line that educators need to walk today if we're going to start really making a difference as far as improving adult literacy, improving our school districts, and improving poverty rates. And and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't really want to open up necessarily a can of worms here on this, but huh. when, when, when the acronym CRT is actually used in this type of, of uh, environment, it's not talking about, as, as most people think, critical race theory. It's talking about what you're just talking, culturally responsive teaching, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, it has the acronym for both. And like you said, we're not debating or discussing that here. That's beyond the scope of this. But you're right. CRT is, to, uh, cul- is also culturally responsive teaching, which means that teachers and instructors must go that extra effort especially nowadays, because we have a lot of rebuilding to do. You know, some areas are are 60% poverty. Yeah. Adult literacy, you know, is, is directly tied to that. So we need to get out, reach out to them. And, and you know, what you, you probably hear the same thing. I hear, well, you know, Ramo, you know, what, we're just going to give them a degree? We don't make them work for it? I shake my head and I... They are working for it, but we need to meet them where we are. We had the honor and privilege of going to a school district that was mostly reflective of how we lived, right? Yeah. But that's not the, that's not the same. As we said earlier, we are conceptually and ideologically different from just 10 years ago. 
How can we expect to do the same thing and expect different results with people who are different? Yeah. Why? How? <laughs> no, I, I'm with you. And, 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 you know, my response is having worked with a lot of those communities is they don't want that. That's not what they're looking for. They don't want you to give them a degree. Right. That, that's, that's not it. They, they want an even fair balanced shot right. at getting a degree. Uh, they want an even playing field. That's it. Not, not a hand me out, uh, not a handout, not a give me, not any of that. Right. They, they just right. want a fair shot. And, you know, I think, um, I think a Mal- Malcolm Gladwell does a really good job of highlighting that in, in his book, Goliath, uh, turning our, our uh, what is the subtitle of that? Turning our, or why our weaknesses are our strengths. Uh, but, but, you know, he talks about that. And, and, and one of the things that he mentions is, uh, you know, so let's just say, um, I think Harvard and Yale, but I think Yale started the, the free tuition program to uh, underprivileged students, but they met academic criteria. He talks about there the statistics in there that the, the backfire on that is, is why, yes, they're getting free tuition to Yale. They're still coming from disadvantaged communities. They, they have responsibilities that, that more affluent uh, kids don't have. And this is regardless of, of, of race, sex, religion. If you're in the, a poor situation, you're in a poor situation. You're not going to be able to live <laughs> around the campus. Um, and if you are, you're going to have to work three or four jobs, which is going to take you away from your studies. You're not going to be able to afford tutors. You're going to be able to afford to do all those things. So it, it, it's almost like dangling a stake behind a glass that you can't get to. And I think that's it, right? Again, talking about this Learning Cities initiative and all it that is. is is we have to take that piece into account. It's not just enough to say, well, hey, I am giving them free tuition. All they got to do is show up. We got room. We got board. How do we reach them in a way that they can actually take advantage of these things, right? Right. And you said dangling a stake behind the glass. And even the best intentions can turn out to be bad what that would do for them, knowing that they can have it, but it's behind a glass and they just can't get it. So they can have this education, but they don't do not have what we call life's biography, but basically the experiences and the education to this point in their lives to successfully engage. Yes, there's stuff that they don't know, and that's why they're there, to learn something. Exactly. But they don't have the foundation because of a, um, a p- low-performing school district or they had to leave high school for a while to take care of aging parents or to work to support the family. How many times do we see that? But people seem to overlook all of that, Earl. We need to, as it says here, stimulate inclusive and sustainable economic growth, which means giving credence to their culture and their life's biography to this point in their life. No, it doesn't have to stay. Yes, they probably have to take some state or federal exam for a certification or something like that. If you're going to be a lawyer or bar exam, you're going in the medical field, you know, the boards and stuff. Yeah, they pass that on their own abilities, but we have to get them there as educators by backfilling what is not yet known and then moving them forward, giving them the ability and the confidence to do it. Love it. Oh, you know what? We're already at 34 minutes and I, (laughs) there's a couple other things that we're not going to get to today, but, you know, but um, I think a lot of what you said about going back to the book. Um, Goliath, 
and finding our strength and our weaknesses. You think about that a minute. Unpack that phrase in and of itself, Marcus Aurelius. In and of itself, what does that mean? It means that we, as instructors and educators, we don't know much about someone else's culture. We don't know how to interact in many ways. But you think about it, that is a weakness that we can turn into a strength just by a little effort. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and as we wrap up here, I, I think I shared this quote, if my memory serves me right, in the last uh, in the last episode. Uh, but I'll share it here again, because I think the way Neil deGrasse Tyson put it is perfect. It says, um, as the areas of our knowledge expand, so do the perimeters of our ignorance. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about here is if you understand, uh, oh, my God, the name just popped out. The, the, the other way of putting that is, is uh, was it true wisdom lies in knowing what you don't know? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I agree with and, that. And that's what we're talking about here is if you know that you don't know these communities, you can ask the questions and, and you can learn. And I think that's the other thing, too, is is education isn't just always from, quote, the educator to the learner. Right. If the educator doesn't come away educated a little bit more from the exchange, they missed out, right? And see, that's what's robust about a hybrid, hybrid, a diverse environment, okay? Using culture, uh, artifacts, material, manipulatives, ways of using that to help bring about grammar, to bring about making an argument, uh, writing good paragraphs, math and so forth but and folks what we're saying is you know we're not dismantling everything it's just we want to include and build and what we have found through research is those instructors who have a diverse approach to their classrooms have a better their learners have a better success rate at standardized tests that are let's just be honest they're a fact of life they are a fact of a community. You want to be uh, 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 a phlebotomist, you need to pass a test. You wanted to be a, a, an electrician, you need to have certification. Okay? But using their backgrounds is all we're saying here. So, folks, you as educators, you are key to their success. And how you approach that will depend on if they succeed or just chalk it up to another tried and failed effort, which does our communities no good. We need all adults for America to be competitive and vibrant. All of us need to be doing our part. I could not agree more. Hey, Ramo, I say, uh, looking at the time here, how about we wrap this one up and we meet back here next week and we finish this conversation for folks. I don't know if we'll finish that, but yeah, no, I'm totally with you. <laughs> okay. We'll continue um, it. How's that sound? Right. So as a takeaway today, Earl, let's say that, you know, as educators, let's start the hard conversations in collaboration with each other, okay? We all have the ability to reduce the proportion of citizens living in poverty, to actively support science, technology, innovation, arts, and stuff like that, include the arts in reading and writing, but we encourage access to diverse cultural activities. That's what we're saying here. Love it. 
All right, folks. Well, thanks for being with us. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. Took uh, took some good stuff away from it. And uh, yeah, we'll be back here next week and, and we'll continue this conversation and uh, see see how much more meat we can pull off of this Learning Cities Initiatives bone. How's that sound? Sounds wonderful. All right, folks. Catch you next week. Bye, everybody. <laughs>